0: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Sarah K. Ellis, the CEO of Glad. We also have David Cole, the National Legal Director of the ACLU. And we have the news with me, Brittany, Sam, and Clint, as always. Before we jump in, just one reminder about asking the biggest question that you can ask. That in this moment, people often are trying to figure out what they can do. And that makes sense, that people are trying to make a difference where they are. My challenge to you would be ask the biggest question. So if the question is about food, deserts in your neighborhood, if the question is about access to resources, if it's about ending mass incarceration, think about like what would it mean to, to get everybody out of jail who shouldn't be there? What would it mean to feed everybody in your city? What would it look like to give housing to everybody who is homeless? Like start from the biggest question and work your way work your way backwards. And I say that because that often encourages us to imagine a world without the constraints, which is really freeing in terms of thinking about what solutions look like. Too often, people start from the smallest question that they have, and then they try and build up. And that's just a harder way to imagine. So start from the biggest question, start there, and let's go. And here's the news with me, Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Samuel Yangwe, our resident data scientist, and Clint Smith III, our resident academic. It's
1: the news. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith, III.
2: You did it. I-I-I. I-I-I. am <laughs> <laughs> a natural.
3: This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media.
2: And this is Sam Sinyangwe
0: at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Duray at Duray D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. You know, I'm, I am I am Duray on Instagram because somebody already had
1: Duray. So as we are recording this on Monday, uh, we're waking up to the news coming out of Las Vegas uh, from the mass shooting. There's a lot that we don't know, and there's obviously a lot that we'll continue to find out over the coming hours and coming days. Uh, I think it's all impor- important for us to be mindful of uh spreading misinformation and making sure that we are waiting to uh, see that things have been corroborated, but our thoughts and prayers are with the victims and their families. And, and it's obviously uh, more devastating news in, in what has already been uh, a pretty devastating time for many of us.
3: So I was actually just in Las Vegas last week because we serve a number of students in schools out in that Region, um, and when you're in Las Vegas, especially when you get off the Strip, you're struck by the beauty. You're struck by the majesty of the mountains, the very calm and serene scenery. Um, and so, how horrible to be in this place trying to enjoy a music festival, um, and instead of kind of enjoying the the surround your surroundings, enjoying the scenery, you are being Peppered with bullets, I don't know how many mass shootings it's going to take in this country for us to get serious about gun control. Uh, at the end of the day, America stands alone in how many mass shootings we experience every single year. And we know from other developed countries that this is preventable, that there are ways to go about ensuring that this does not happen again. And so I truly hope uh, that the families in Las Vegas who are suffering right now, now, find some solace and find some justice. And I also hope that we can prevent tragedies like this in the future by getting serious about gun control.
2: So in times like these, there's often a a tendency from the right and from conservatives to, you know, say now is not the time to talk about gun control uh, or efforts to limit access to guns. And the reality is that if that politics happens, especially in this country, If it happens at all, uh, change happens in response to tragedy um, and in response to organizing and outrage following uh, tragedy. And so I think, you know, if not now, then when? Uh, And what's clear is that, you know, tragedy after tragedy like this, there has not been action. Um, And there have been those who have sought to uh, prevent a conversation about solutions and prevention from actually happening. And I think uh, it's important to push back against those notions and actually, move forward with identifying what those solutions are. How do we actually uh, limit access to guns and how do we reduce the total number of guns uh, that people have, especially the most, you know, extreme forms of weapons, automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons. Um, And how do we do that in a way that is uh, not disproportionately uh, used against uh, communities of color and black communities, as we've seen uh, happen uh, oftentimes with efforts at gun control, uh, but that rather targets um, those who are uh, most often, you know, involved in these mass shootings uh, and that, you know, use guns to kill, you know, large numbers of people.
0: You know, the only thing I'll add is that it's clear that we need to have an honest conversation about guns, that when these events happen too often, there's a media storm immediately that says it's wrong, that we have sort of an emotional response. It's a whole lot of prayers and a whole lot of condolences that actually don't turn into substance. And that's just not fair to people's lives. And that's not fair to the reality that we live in. So I'm hopeful that when we talk about this in a week or in a month or in a year, that we will look back and say that something changed as a result of this tragedy. You know, we're still learning what actually Happen and and the events are unfolding as we're recording the podcast today. Uh,
1: But we have to make sure that this turns into action. So obviously over the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about the protests that have been happening in the NFL. We've been discussing the reasons that players are taking a knee or sitting down during the national anthem is not to disrespect the military or the flag, but it is to bring attention to uh, police brutality, to mass incarceration, to uh, the disproportionate impact of uh, inequality on people of color and oftentimes from the right but not singularly from the right something used to derail the conversation will be oh what about black on black crime um and we know that this is uh, a sentiment that is like imbued with a lot of of, a deep deeply disingenuous claim um And what we know to be true is that 84% of white people are killed by other white people, but you never hear folks talk about white-on-white crime, right? And so it's clear that there's a double standard, and there's, a, a, I think, about a 7% uh, difference in terms of white-on-white crime and black-on-black crime. And, And we've discussed on this podcast and has been outlined extensively that that percentage difference can be tied back to issues of hypersegregation in communities, tied back to issues of uh, history of decades of public policy that has segregated neighborhoods and made it so that certain people do not have access to certain neighborhoods, and thus it stratifies um, our neighborhoods uh, along racial lines in in a deeply profound way. And people kill those who they live in close proximity to. So White people tend to kill other white people. Black people tend to kill other black people. Latino folks can tend to kill other Latino folks. And, and that is, so it is not necessarily reflective of anything that has to do with race. It is instead reflective of something that has to do with proximity. Uh, and also what's important to note is that uh, the phrase, the original phraseology of black on black crime is something that has been sort of been stripped of its original its intent uh, and in the 70s, black-on-black crime was this idea that black activists use in order to bring attention to the fact that crimes with black victims were not dealt with with the same sense of moral urgency that crimes with white victims had, right? So if a, uh, you live in a hypersegregated community and a black person killed another black person, the police uh, either ignored the crime completely uh, and it went unsolved or they, they didn't allot a lot of resources to um, trying to figure out what that crime was in order to prevent something like that from happening again. And, and so many black leaders and, uh, and clergy folk and community members felt like they were, there was a clear deprioritization of their community, especially in poor, poor black communities, um, as compared to when, uh, or there was a white victim, there was like a profound sense of moral urgency to solve the crime, to make sure that it wasn't happening again. Um, especially if it were a black, uh, a suspect um, but even if it were a white suspect as well and so you know it's interesting the ways in which it has been sort of co-opted to suggest something a lot more sinister or and to be used as a trope to suggest that black people are somehow inherently more violent uh, than than their counterparts but but again we know that the reason that uh, people kill people who look like them is because of decades of segregation that forced them to live in close proximity to in a in a, in a very homogenous um community context so uh, i think that's important to keep in mind and to arm yourself with uh with this history and with this data when people come to you saying what about black on black crime that you can uh refute that um w- using you know both historical and
2: empirical evidence so i just want to echo that last part around the police response to crime and how it differs by neighborhood and by by race Because what's clear, as you said, Clint, is that the research shows that, you know, policing and especially police violence actually increases crime. So what's fascinating to me is uh, the ways in which this phrase black-on-black crime uh, is used as a way to sort of dismiss or distract from uh, or undermine the cause of ending police violence. And it's done in two ways. So the first way that it's used is to say that, why aren't you just focusing on this issue instead of police violence? And then there'll be all of these claims that are made about how this is a bigger issue and you should be focused on this on this issue of crime instead. And again, what's interesting about this is looking at the research that actually acts of police violence increase rates of crime, particularly in black communities. So a study came out that was reported uh in the New York Times about a year ago, which looked at Milwaukee and what they found was that after a high-profile incident of police violence, calls to police dropped dramatically in black neighborhoods because people were afraid to call the police for obvious reasons after seeing somebody get brutalized for doing that same thing. The one thing that isn't talked about as much as the ways in which police violence destabilizes communities and actually leads to crime increases The second thing that's interesting is looking at the research on the connection or lack thereof between issues of crime and issues of police violence. So the second way that this sort of black on black crime trope is used is to say that police are more likely to kill black people because of black people being inherently violent or inherently criminal in nature. And that's sort of the assumption that is often made by those on the right. Uh, you'll see it whenever they, whenever there are discussions about police violence and dis- racial disparities, they will put up some you know, murder statistics of black men or something like that and try to distract from the issue and try to explain it away as saying police are in violent situations, dealing with violent people, and therefore using violence as a means to defend themselves and others. And that's sort of been the prevailing assumption that's pushed forward by many on the right and by many in police circles uh, without any evidence really to support it. And so what's interesting when you look at the research on this is actually that there is no empirical connection between uh, rates of crime in communities and rates of police killings. And so there are a couple studies that I'll cite here. Uh, the first study is a study from a professor at Columbia University, uh, Jeffrey Fagan, who looked at rates of crime, looked at rates of police violence and, and the diversity of police forces. And what he found was that there's actually no connection between uh, rates of homicides of black people and other black people and rates of homicides of black people by police. The, so that is one of many studies that have actually come out. There's another by uh, Cody Ross who looked at the same issue, found that county level uh, crime rates did not predict rates of police shootings. There's a study that we did at mappingpoliceviolence.org which looked at rates of uh, violent crime in cities versus rates of police involved killings. Again, no correlation so, you know, this is a well-established fact that these two issues are actually not, uh, are not related, they're not correlated, they're independent of one another and should be dealt with independently, and yet sort of they are lumped together as being something where, you know, we can't deal with police violence if, there are, if there's crime in communities. That's sort of the, the assumption that's made, and, and that is just patently false.
3: You know, I know that folks will sometimes hear, sure, if um, you know, uh, Black people are never responsible, right? What about personal responsibility is often the retort. What we're talking about here is dealing with the root and not the symptom, right? So we're talking about dealing with the virus of highly concentrated poverty, of housing segregation, and those patterns that have led to these outcomes. That is not to say that... Um, violent criminals should not be held accountable. It is to say that ending poverty is a better uh, form of crime prevention than all of the issues with criminal justice and just locking people up and throwing away the key that we've been talking about, right? Equal housing prevents violence. Better education prevents violence. Strong employment prevents violence. Again, when you build strong communities from the ground up, we don't have to deal with violent crime or over-policing from the top down.
0: It's important, Clint, that we, that we do bring up this idea of black and black crime. While it's annoying that we have to keep talking about it because this is like an age old issue, like nothing about this is new. But if we don't talk about it, we can't change it. And the reality is, is that These are just tools to distract people from focusing on the real issues. When you think about what Trump does is Trump always tries to take the focus off of racism or systemic inequity and tries to make sure that it's about something else that'll get people spinning their wheels. And black on black crime is a great tactic to get people to spin their wheels. You've already provided the stats in the philosophical background, Sam and Clint and Brittany. uh, So I'm just here to say that we got to talk about it so that we can make sure that we're prepared to debunk it and just move on from this because it's never brought up in sincerity. It's always brought up as a distraction
2: technique. So my piece of news is a new study that came out in the Journal of Nature and Human Behavior and is related to this issue because it addresses this issue of over-policing and under-policing that you talked about, Brittany. Mainly this focus on over-policing of Black communities related to... Sort of minor infractions, low level offenses, what they call broken windows policing, which you know is this prevailing method of policing that believes that if police are strict and sort of have a zero tolerance approach towards small things like jumping a turnstile at the subway or possessing a little amount of marijuana or having an open container of alcohol on the street or sitting in a par- sleeping in a park bench. That that will somehow create an environment that discourages serious crime from happening. And what's interesting about this study is they look at the police slowdown, which was when police went on strike in 2014 after the killing of Eric Garner, and uh, there were those two officers who were killed in New York, and then Mayor De Blasio gave this speech where he said, you know, if he had a uh, you know he had to talk to his son about police violence and how it was you know a real issue and police essentially you know lost their mind and decided to not police uh not do their job right they did not police uh much at all in that in those ensuing weeks so the researchers looked at what happened when broken windows policing essentially ended in New York City for those for that period of time that police were on strike and what they found was actually that serious crime uh, things like robbery and and homicide actually dropped so police were they stopped over policing these minor offenses and serious crime dropped as a it, directly following that decision and so what's fascinating about this is you hear that this over policing uh, particularly of communities of color and black communities is depicted as so necessary to address you know this issue of black on black crime this trope that that we just talked about Clint and yet, what we actually find when you look at the data is that that type of policing in many in many ways, there's evidence that it actually makes serious crime worse. And so the solutions to end police violence and to end broken windows policing, which you know so many activists have pushed for both in New York and across the country, those solutions actually could reduce the overall crime rate. and yet they get dismissed as being insufficiently, focused on that very issue. And so I think that is sort of the, the ultimate irony and, and the paradox of doing this work and of these types of assumptions that are made about uh, police accountability and ending police violence and the role that that will actually have in, in making our communities safer. So Sam, I'm glad you
1: brought this up. And, and it certainly builds on the point that we were making earlier about uh, false notions of, of black-on-black crime and violence in communities and, and where that comes from. And what it is, and what it is not, uh, and and what's important for people to know is that the implications of broken windows policing are not are not abstract. Like these have very real, concrete implications on people's lives. And and when you are continuously uh, arrested and put in jail for uh, low level crimes that are not actually at all tied to your likelihood of committing uh, more violent crimes, which is the the Often espouse pretense of broken windows policing. Um, these have very real effects on your ability to maintain a job, your ability to uh, maintain custody of your children, your ability to, um, you know, be able to pay rent you know, and not get evicted from your home. Uh, and and what we know to be true is that Vera, the Vera Institute, had a big report that they did on jails and um, a lot of the arrests that lead people to jail, um, in a broken windows policing context. And and they found that nearly 75% of people in jail are being held for nonviolent traffic, property, drug, or public order offenses. And again, these are the idea of broken windows policing is that they suggest that you get people when they're doing these low level things so that they won't go on to do uh, more violent things. But, but often what you're doing is just, you're taking away parents from their homes. You're taking away people from their jobs. You're taking away people from their children, um, and And that leads to a sort of social chaos and disruption that only exacerbates the 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 effects of of that people are experiencing in these under resourced communities um and makes it worse and doesn't actually make people safer and doesn't actually make uh make things better at all. The myth busting is really important, and this is sort of a theme in the first two pieces of news but
0: the myths hold so much sway in the public conversation. So either with like the way we talk about guns, certainly the way that we talk about prisons, the way that we talk about kids deserving education, there are all these myths about like parents who don't really care and people who are mismanaging money and the the, sort of the myth of the welfare queen and how great drug-free school zones are and black on black crime. Like the myths take up a lot of space and they're designed to take up space. Like that is the purpose of them. They are propaganda in the most, uh, in the most pure sense of propaganda. And it's important that we talk about them, that we debunk this idea that like Black people are just criminal, as Sam talked about. We debunk this idea uh, that police are, that the police presence in neighborhoods is always a positive thing, that we help people think more deeply about what safety looks like. And we always say that, you know, that this is not about the police, but this is about a deeper conception of safety. That safety at its root is this idea that there will always be rules. There will be people who break the rules and there should be consequences. Most of us, the majority of us agree on that premise. The question becomes in who enforces the consequences and then what is the most harsh consequence, right? And we can negotiate whether the police are the people that need to enforce the consequences at all, like open to suggestions about what another system of safety looks like. And is the harshest consequence death or life in prison? Doesn't have to be. So how do we imagine differently? But that imagining can't happen until we actually bust the myths. And that's important.
3: Um, So the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, more commonly known as GLSEN, uh, hosted Ally Week last week. Uh, Ally Week was an opportunity for educators and those involved in school communities to be led by students. Um, in uh, hearing and learning more about how to show up as better allies, especially in school settings. Um, And Ally Week this year was particularly important given some findings um, that GLSEN discovered in their most recent survey, Um, some that are particularly disturbing uh, that I wanted to share. Um, About 66% of LGBTQ identifying students experienced discrimination related to that identity at school um, due to feeling unsafe or on comfortable. Nearly a third of those students missed at least one day of school um, last month. Um, Nearly 40% avoid bathrooms and nearly 40% avoid locker rooms. Um, What was also really disturbing to me was that a majority of LGBTQ students report hearing a biased remark from a school staff member and or that school staff members fail to intervene when they hear others. So, obviously, um, adults not not carrying the, the burden that, and the load that we should be carrying in keeping students safe. Um, and all of this leads to a difficulty in, in maintaining strong outcomes in an academic setting. So, students... LGBTQ students who experienced high levels of victimization and discrimination all had lower GPAs, they had lower self-esteem and higher levels of depression, and they were twice as likely to report um, that they don't plan to pursue college or some other post-secondary education. Uh, And so I just wanted to share that information. As I said, Ally Week was last week, but you you can actually go online and follow the hashtag MyAllies to hear directly from students and LGBTQ School staff, as to how we can be showing up better for folks. So
1: I'm thinking about this through the lens of somebody who taught high school English for for a few years, and and I'm thinking a lot about uh, my LGBTQ students, and and you know, I think in the mid to late 2000s, I can't remember exactly, there was this big movement um, called like it gets it gets better campaign, right? And it was the idea that. Um, more and more people were beginning to come out of the closet, were beginning to open up to their family and their friends about who they were. And, and you had a lot of older folks in the queer community who were trying to remind uh, younger queer uh, children and young adults that uh, it will not always be as hard as it is to be who you are. Um, and that one day you will be able to be a fuller or the fullest version of yourself. And, and I... I always had kind of mixed feelings about the campaign because on on one end I think it's so so important right that um that you have example, examples for young people uh who are who are queer to that that it is possible to one day be your your biggest and fullest and most honest self uh, I also struggled because I I know that the reality for so many of my students was that um and for so many young people throughout the country is that it? It might not get better in the way that that it was sort of uh, discussed in in those videos and in that campaign, and and that like not everybody can is going to move to San Francisco or New York or or ultimately become an adult in a place that allows them to um, uh, be their full selves, and and I think it's important that we provide spaces of hope. For young LGBTQ students, um, but also not uh, engage in sort of empty rhetoric, because I think the thing about it gets better, it can sort of we can say that and then feel like we don't actually have to do anything to contribute to creating an environment that actually makes things better for young people like it it makes us feel good. But it also allows us to be complicit in uh, an environment that can be deeply violent um, and um, deeply harmful to, to young queer folks, um, as Brittany has pointed out. And so just a reminder for all of us to be thinking actively about what we are doing or not doing to create spaces and environments for for young people to be able to be their fullest selves now and not make it so that they are waiting for this day or this time or this place um, that we keep telling them exist that actually will only exist if we put the work in to create it. And Brittany, I'm happy that you brought this
0: up because, you know, we talk about the police and mass incarceration and and those sort of issues so much because they are top of mind, because they are often issues about scale. So we're trying to figure out like, how do we, address a system at scale. There's so many other issues that we aren't able to talk about to be in the podcast that we that we will start talking about as we go through some of the core issues in mass incarceration. So I'm excited about our opportunity to talk about identity more and the way that you're bringing this news forward today. I'm excited to talk about ethnicity with more depth, right? Like there's so many other contours of the justice conversation that we uh, will be having soon, but In terms of my response to your news is that, you know, that makes sense to me. It is sad in a sense because I remember being a gay black kid growing up in Baltimore and it was hard, you know, like school wasn't the most uh, welcoming place in general. And I was in student government and those sort of things. So I didn't necessarily get picked on, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't still a homophobic environment to grow up in because it was. And I, I was hopeful because I see so many kids today and I like, look at how free they are in school. And it's just like, wow, like I never got to show up in that way at school. But when I hear those survey results, it's like it actually hasn't changed as much as I would hope. And I, Clint, you're right that like the language of it, it gets better is actually not the reality for so many people. Like for so many people, it doesn't get better. And even if it does get better, what People forget when they hear it gets better is that it only gets better because people do work. It doesn't like just magically get better. People don't magically become less homophobic and more accepting. Like somebody actually does work around that. Like community becomes more accepting because work is done because conversations are had because people see that people are human. Like those, that, that takes work. It's not just magic. So when I think about my own self as a gay black man, who's older now and has, you know, went through middle school and high school and endured that. And as somebody who taught uh, and who was led in, uh, in three public school systems, like, I know that, that, that the work that has to happen to make classrooms and schools safer for all kids and that they can show up in the fullness of who they are. And Brittany, you talked about people being afraid to go to the bathroom, those sort of things. Some of that is about how we hire, that we are hiring for people who believe in equity and justice on the front end and who believe in inclusion and acceptance, that we also are having robust trainings around what it, how language impacts the way that kids grow up. So, you know, I know some elementary schools that have gay-straight alliances now. Like, that's really incredible because that is really parents coming together saying that we should talk about identity in a more complex way and that we should recognize that kids are growing up and that they already are having the conversation. So we might as well catch up with them and, and be prepared to engage in the conversation. And the third is, about the curriculum so making sure that the fullness of people's complex lives actually shows up in the stories and in the lessons and in the problems that people face in the classrooms and that's not, not that's not an impossible ask right that is like a real thing and I think about how that didn't show up in my own classroom when I was a student that like I never saw I you know I barely saw black teachers let alone like teachers that weren't from a heteronormative uh, space and you know, the survey is sad in the sense that it is a reminder that we have so so much further to go, even though we've come so far. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming
4: in the decades before the Civil War. Slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham. Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South.
0: Today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash people. And now my conversation with David Cole, the National Legal Director of the ACLU. David, thank you for joining us today on Pots of the People. My pleasure. You're at the ACLU. Yep. What do you do at the ACLU?
5: I'm the National Legal Director.
0: And how did you get to the ACLU?
5: Well, I've uh, been a constitutional lawyer and constitutional law professor for a long time, uh, for about thirty-some years. And longer
0: than I've been alive. <laughs> there you go.
5: <laughs> and And last summer, uh, the um, the national legal director of the ACLU, longtime director Steve Shapiro, stepped down, uh, and the executive director came to me and you know uh, asked whether I'd be interested in. Uh, taking on this position, and he said, David, it's a great opportunity. You've been teaching and practicing constitutional law for 30 years under a conservative Supreme Court. Just think what it would be like to lead the ACLU in the Supreme Court under a liberal Supreme Court. Because, of course, last summer, we all thought Hillary Clinton would win the election. She would appoint Justice Scalia's replacement. And for the first time in four decades, we would have a Supreme Court um, uh, headed up by a liberal majority. It's been a conservative majority court since 1973 or so. Uh, And so I thought, what a great opportunity, signed on the bottom line. Uh, you know, didn't uh, put in any condition saying, well, what happens if uh, something else happens on November 8th? And, of course, something else did happen on November 8th, and uh, it's a very different job.
0: Is there something fundamentally different about arguing before the Supreme Court than the other courts, like besides the fact that
5: it's know, the Supreme Court? Well, uh, the fact that it's the Supreme Court is a huge uh, factor because there is no further appeal. Uh, But it's also different in that, you know, when you are, so so when you argue in trial court, you're arguing to a single judge. With a single judge, you can have a a real conversation back and forth. He or she can raise questions. You can answer. Uh, then there's a, uh, you know, a, a question and response, et cetera, et cetera. And you can get a sense that you're moving that judge or not moving that judge. At the court of appeals level, which is the next level, the court sits in uh, panels of three. You can still have a conversation with three judges. You know, Sometimes one is more active than others, but you can have a kind of a, a conversation. At the Supreme Court, you've got nine justices, and and you've got a half hour, and eight of them are very active questioners, and so you can get. 50. Is Claire
0: Thomas the one who? Justice is-
5: Thomas almost never asks a question, but pretty much everybody else asks. Many questions. You you can get fifty questions in a half hour, and so you. It's more like you're a ping pong ball. You're just getting knocked from this justice to that justice. You're responding to this question as soon as you get you get two sentences into your response to justice number one, and justice number two asks you a question. So you so preparing for the argument in the Supreme Court is quite different. You have to think about you know what are your principal themes. Your two or three principal themes and how are you going to answer each of the questions that might arise uh, in a way that advances your claim. You're not going to be able to make, have a sustained conversation with a single judge.
0: And before we jump into the work of the ACLU now, let's talk about the structure of your team.
5: Yeah. What is so, the structure? So the ACLU is a, uh, a nationwide organization and it's, um, It consists of a national office, which is principally in New York, although we have a national office outpost here in Washington, D.C. as well. Uh, And that has about 100 attorneys. They're divided by subject matter. So you'll have um, a racial justice project, a voting rights project, a women's rights project, an LGBT Uh, rights project, a reproductive freedom project, a speech privacy and technology project. And the lawyers in those projects are really subject matter specialists, and they litigate all over the country, cutting edge issues in those areas. But then we also have, and that's about 100 lawyers. We then also have 200 other lawyers out there in the field in every, essentially every state in the union, there is an ACLU affiliate office. Some of them are quite large. The New York affiliate has something like 70 employees. Uh, the, some of the, the offices in California are quite large. The Mississippi ACLU office might have five employees. But in virtually every state, we have people on the ground, uh, offices on the ground. And they the lawyers there are generalists. They take whatever comes in the door that raises uh, civil liberties or civil rights concerns that are within our uh, within our ambit. And we are a very federalist structure in the sense that um, national can't uh, dictate to the uh, affiliates. The, you know, the Mississippi affiliate makes its own independent decisions about which cases it wants to take. I can encourage them to take a case. I can discourage them from taking a case. But I can't stop them from taking a case. I can't make them take a case. It's a very, very – Uh, sort of decentralized um, structure. But I think one of the great things about the ACLU is that we do have people on the ground throughout the country. And so, you know, we're not just sort of sitting in New York and, you know, thinking about what the issues are. We have people on the ground in every state who know what the issues are because people are coming to them with complaints.
0: Now, you have, um, there are five cases before the Supreme Court, What my notes is. This term. before Before we go to that, I wanted to ask you about Charlottesville. So there were people who were frustrated with the ACLU's defense of um, the – what was the – was it the KKK? Who
5: did, you, who did you help defend? We represented Jason Kessler, who's an individual who sought the uh, permit to uh, hold the protest at the Robert E. Lee monument in Charlottesville.
0: And he was a – the. Press reported that he was affiliated with a white supremacist group. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and later the ACLU came out and said that essentially that you wouldn't do that sort of defense any longer, I think is what I read. No, no no, 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 no. So, not yeah. that. so help us understand yeah. what yeah. happened.
5: So, you know, so the, so the ACLU uh, has for it's – it's been around for 97 years now. And uh, it has long taken the position that the First Amendment protects all speakers – uh uh who stop short of violence, uh and that the government can't discriminate against speakers based on the, the their ideology or their message. And so we have defended, uh we have historically defended people whose views we detest, whose views we abhor. Uh, back in 1934, the founders of the ACLU wrote a pamphlet defending their defense of Nazis to march. Uh, and you know and these were mostly Jewish founders of the ACLU they had no love for the Nazis and this was 1934 as Hitler was coming to power and nonetheless they argued the first our view of the first amendment is it doesn't allow the government to pick and choose based on ideology in 19 in the 1970s we again we represented again a group of Nazis who sought to march in Skokie Illinois which was a predominantly Jewish suburb of Chicago where many Holocaust survivors um, uh, lived. And, uh, and we nonetheless re- defended the right of that, uh, of that group uh, to march. We lost half our membership um, because that was such a controversial case at the time. But we thought it was the right thing to do. Charlottesville, uh, Mr. Kessler came to us because he had been granted a permit to have a, a – a demonstration at this monument. He was protesting the decision to take down the monument. Uh, The city had had at the last minute uh, revoked the permit and said he had to go protest a mile away from the uh, monument that he was protesting, but the counter protesters could pro- could, uh, could protest right there at the monument, and there was evidence that they were doing so on the basis of their agreement with the counter protesters and their disagreement with the protesters. Uh, we got him to, well, we, the Virginia affiliate, and remember I said there each affiliate has its own independent judgment, but the Virginia affiliate got him to sign a a, a, a declaration that he intended to have a a peaceful march. Um, and we went into court uh, and the judge uh, asked the city, you know, why are you treating him differently from the people who are expressing views opposed to his? And the city had no Good reason. They they offered no evidence that suggested why they were treating him differently. And the judge said under the First Amendment, you can't treat him differently. Uh, and then the march happened. And, you know, and a- as we know, it was tragic. Uh, as we also know, the police did a terrible job. They didn't keep the protesters apart. Um, you can, and in many places police do keep protesters and counter protesters apart, and then you know you have people yelling at each other, but you don't have people fighting, and uh you don't get to a situation in which someone drives a car into counter protesters and kills somebody so um it it was a it's a you know it's a terrible uh it was a terrible event it was a horrific event um but uh, but our action in that case is consistent with what we've what we've done in the past and um, um, and didn't you release
0: it? I thought the ACLU released a statement in response to the
5: backlash. So we did issue a statement in which we said um, we um, will not, you know, going forward, we are not going to represent armed protesters, people carrying weapons. Um, okay. And 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 of course, as you know, at, at Charlottesville, people showed up with weapons. Mr. Kessler didn't say there would be weapons. There was no, you know, uh, allegation by the city that there would be weapons. But in fact, people showed up. And, you know, to what extent it was Mr. Kessler or other, uh, you know, affiliated or ideologically aligned groups that came with the weapons. People came with weapons, and so, you know, we 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 think that it's perfectly reasonable for uh, cities to say, as a condition of protesting, you can't bring weapons. Yeah, you, know, you know that that inc- risks escalation. It risks the need for uh, for for um, uh, harsher policing measures and, and the like. I mean, you know, when we have the Fourth of July celebration here at the mall, everybody is searched and no weapons are permitted. It's, we think it's reasonable to have that at at protests, and that there will be more free speech, not less.
0: Five cases before the Supreme Court. I don't want this to be a quiz, <laughs> but. What are they?
5: Well, you know, in some ways, this is our. uh, You know, we 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 said we said two days after Trump took office, we took out a full page ad in the New York Times. We'll see you in court, to Donald Trump. Saying you know you've promised to to ban Muslims to open up libel laws to to prosecute your your opponent all kinds of unconstitutional actions if you do that we'll see you in court well now we're you know we can amend that we'll see you in the Supreme Court because in all five cases we are facing the Trump administration Uh, and we're we're in in these cases we're defending. Uh, voting rights uh, of people. We are uh, defending the equality rights of uh, of same-sex couples. Uh, we are defending the uh, rights to be free of re- condemnation of one's religion, of, of Muslims. Uh, we are, f- are defending the privacy rights of cell phone uh, uh, users, and we are defending the rights of immigrants not to be locked up uh, indefinitely, without a demonstration that there is any real any reason to lock them up, and That's all what five of
0: these are against Donald Trump.
5: Essentially, they're all yeah. It, well, they're not. They're not all five. Pres- Directly against, against the administration, Trump, but he yes, but the administration has entered the case. On each case, the uh, the administration is on the other side, arguing against voting rights, against equality for gays and lesbians, uh, against privacy of uh, cell phone users, uh, against religious freedom of Muslims, and against immigrants' uh, rights to be free of uh, arbitrary detention. And what is, what's the cycle for
0: the Supreme Court? Like, when will you when will you be in court? When will this be in the news? When will we know the outcome? Um, like what does that look
5: like? So they uh, they they have a uh, every term uh, every year they have a term. It starts in October, starts on the first Monday. It's in about o- to start. It's starting October uh, second or third. Uh, okay. Second, um, we have a case on October third. Uh, uh, I'm going to be uh, uh, arguing the Trump travel ban case on October 10th. Uh, Uh, assuming the court grants our motion for divided argument with Hawaii, because we have a case that's been consolidated with Hawaii that challenges the Trump travel ban. Uh, And then it goes through, it hears arguments through about April, and it issues all of its decisions by uh, the end of June. So that's their their year, starts in October, and it ends the end of June, and then they go off for the summer. Interesting.
0: Uh, The new justice, Gorsuch, we haven't seen him do anything, have we?
5: well he was he we haven't seen him do much uh he was confirmed last term in time for uh him to sit on thirteen cases um so we've we've seen his his votes uh and in some instances his opinions in thirteen cases but that's a very it's not a lot It's not a big sample size
0: do we know anything is there anything that we should know you know
5: thus far he's proven to be uh uh very much what you'd expect from a trump appointment very very conservative.
0: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come.
6: Hi, I'm Aaron Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to
7: Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only.
0: So can you think, before we talk about one of the cases before the court this year that you guys are about to argue in October, um, are there any cases that aren't Roe v. Wade, marriage equality, those sort of big cases everybody knows that you all have had a part in that you think have fundamentally changed sort of the landscape of the American fabric?
5: So I think there are many, many such cases. But uh, uh, one I can give you is a a case called Tinker, uh, which was a case from the Vietnam War era uh, in which a student uh, who was protesting the Vietnam War wore a black armbrand to school. And the school, public school, uh, suspended him for simply her, actually, for wearing the black armband. Uh, And the question in the case was, do students have a First Amendment right to express themselves in school or do the school officials have the power to suppress any expression of uh, political opinion? Uh, And we won that case and the court said the First Amendment does not stop at the schoolhouse Gates. Another case that uh, I think people are, are, are familiar with from watching television but has a real effect in, in ordinary people's lives uh, is Miranda versus Arizona, which was a case that said that – The You argued that? Yeah, which was uh, – we, we, I'm not sure whether we whether – we, there were five cases together there, whether we were counsel in one of those five cases or whether we filed an amicus brief, but we were in that case. Uh, and that case established the, the, the right to have an attorney uh, uh, when you're interrogated by the police and the right to stop the police from interrogating. Another set of cases that we argued in the 1970s established that laws that discriminate on the basis of sex violate the Constitution for a 100 years. The court had said that it's perfectly natural to treat women and men differently. And so you had laws that had been upheld that said women could not be lawyers, for example, because that was a male profession. Wow. Uh, and, and when we – in the 1970s, we had a women's rights project. It was headed up – by a lawyer by the name of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Shut up. Yeah. And she filed a series of cases. She worked for the ACLU? She worked for the <laughs> That's ACLU. awesome. And filed a series of cases that established the principle that discrimination on the basis of sex uh, is, uh, is suspect and, and violates the Equal Protection Clause unless there's a very uh, good reason for doing so. So you know, I, I think that you know, constitutional law shapes all of our lives and shapes essentially what the government can do to us. And we are in there every day fighting uh, for the liberty, equality, and dignity rights of all Americans. Will we see you on the bench one day?
0: <laughs> on a I, bench? Have I, you ever been I, a judge?
5: I've never been a judge. I, 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 I don't uh, expect to be a judge. I, I, I like being on the side of, uh, of advocating for the, for the causes I believe in. I love it. Now,
0: there's a privacy case that you guys are arguing this year what is yeah, it? And, it's and called it
5: Carp- it's called Carpenter versus United States. I think it's quite possibly one of the most important cases the court will decide in, the, in you know, this this term, and it really is about whether privacy will survive in the digital age. the the the, the, qu- the specific question in the case is: Can the government get from your cell phone provider the data that your cell phone provider collects on where you are twenty four seven? When you're walking around with your cell phone, because the way a cell phone works is it connects up to cell towers and the cell phone providers keep records of when your phone is connecting to the cell tower. And every time you make a call, every time you receive a call and every time your phone even checks, you know, for whether your email is updated, uh, there's a connection to a cell tower. And that information uh, locates you and says, OK, you know, on this day, at this time, you were in, you know, at, at, at 24th and K in D.C. And and then an hour later, you were, you know, uh, out in Silver Spring, Maryland. And two hours later, you were somewhere else. And the government has taken the position that because by carrying the phone, you give that information to the cell phone provider, they can get it without a warrant. Without probable cause, without any suspicion. And so in the case that we're involved in, they got 127 days worth of where Mr. Carpenter had been, 24-7 for 127 days. And they argue, based on pre-digital era decisions, that when you share information with some third party – You no longer have an expectation of privacy that's protected by the Fourth Amendment. And so the government can get it. And and so what does this apply to? It doesn't just apply to, you know, your cell phone location data. It also applies to the search terms you put into Google because you share those with Google. It also applies to the contents of your emails because when you send an email, you send it through a – Email provider that can ha- that has access to that content. It also applies to the things you read and the websites you search uh, and 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 view uh, online because you're sharing with your service provider and with those website uh, uh, holders uh, your identity. So the government's argument is because in the digital age everything you do online is shared, they can get it and they can get it for months at a time. Without any requirement that they show probable cause that you've engaged in some sort of wrongdoing, if they win that argument, privacy is dead. That is why. Why, why were they looking after Mr. Carpenter? They they suspected Mr. Carpenter of engaging in uh, uh, robberies of, ironically, cell phone stores, <laughs> and so they so they they got this uh, information so that they could locate him. At the various cell phone stores oh, that had been robbed at the time of the robbery, so it's very useful information. In what state where, where did this arise? Uh, out in uh, out in the the Midwest, a series of uh, uh, there were a number of states involved okay. out in the Midwest, but so it's useful information. We don't question that. We don't think the government should not be able to get it, but we think they should have to – make just like they, they get to search your home if they have probable cause that you've engaged in criminal activity. But their argument is they should be able to get this information about any of us or indeed all of us uh, without making any showing to a judge that they have reason to suspect you of X. And, you know, if, you, if someone knows 24-7 where you have been over the last four months – they have a very intimate picture of your yeah. life, what doctors you go to, uh, whether you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, where you sleep at night, uh, you know, who you're hanging out with. If you put two, you know, people's uh, uh, cell phone data together, uh, it's it's really quite remarkable what they can learn. Uh, and our argument is, yeah, they should be able to get that, but only where they can show probable cause that someone is engaged in criminal activity. And what um, – so there's a travel ban. There's privacy. Yep we have an, another case we have is uh is, is called a case called masterpiece cake shop uh in, in La- you said masterpiece huh it's
0: not Master P. It's Ma- Ma-
5: masterpiece it's okay. <laughs> masterpiece cake shop masterpiece cake shop okay uh it's a um uh it, it's a bakery in in colorado uh, a a, a same sex couple uh, um, uh charlie craig and and david mullins got married uh, they wanted to celebrate their wedding. Uh, they went to this cake shop to purchase a cake for their same-sex wedding. And when he found out that it was for a same-sex wedding, he said, I won't I won't sell you a cake uh, because I don't want to be any part of celebrating a same-sex wedding. In Colorado, uh, they have a law, like many uh, states do, that if you go into business serving the public, you can't discriminate. You can't discriminate on the basis of race. You can't discriminate on the basis of creed. You can't discriminate on the basis of, of, uh, of sex. You can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, and, and he discriminated on the basis of sexual orientation. He would have sold uh, a cake to a uh, opposite-sex couple, but because this was a same-sex couple, he refused to sell them the cake. He argues that he should have a First Amendment exemption to – uh, the civil this the civil rights law uh, because he ideologically objects to same sex marriage. Uh, our argument is that there 's no first amendment right to discriminate that uh, when if a state requires you to treat when you go into business to treat all customers without uh, discrimination equally uh, you can 't say well because I object politically or on religious grounds uh, to this you know, particular status of people doing X, Y, or Z, uh, I, I, I somehow get an exemption, uh, from, from this, uh, from this rule.
0: Got it. Now, now in this moment, there are people who I think are losing hope because of the chaos of this administration. They are frustrated and they don't know where to turn. What do you say to those people?
5: I say, uh, that I, you know, I, from my perspective, This is a terrible time, but it's also an incredible opportunity. I have never seen more civic engagement from those who are concerned about civil rights and civil liberties in my lifetime. Uh, And and to me, that's what's ultimately going to save us. If we continue to engage at the level that we saw in the, you know, the, 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 the women's march or in the level we saw in the you know, people rushing out to the airports to, uh, to protest the, uh, the travel ban or if you, or at the level you've seen with respect to the town halls on, uh, on repealing Obamacare, uh, that is, that's where power lies in a democracy. It's people standing up coming together and fighting for what they believe in. And I think, um, you know, I, again, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, one sign of that is is the ACLU, right? We we had, before President Trump was elected, we had 400,000 members. We had that, roughly that many for the last decade. Today, we have 1.6 million members. We got, we we quadrupled our membership. Why is that? Because people are concerned and they recognize that when, rights are under attack. The way you defend those rights is by coming together, standing up and being heard. And if people continue to do that, I think we will continue to be effective. It's no coincidence that when people went out to the airports, when people demonstrated against the travel ban, the courts uh, struck it down. Uh, It's no coincidence that when people went to town halls and 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 castigated their representatives for uh, proposing to repeal Obamacare. Uh, the the efforts to repeal Obamacare uh, failed. So you know we just need to keep fighting. And if we keep fighting, uh, I think you know this could be the resurgence of uh, of the progressive uh, of the progressive movement. You
0: wrote a book. I just got it in the mail the other day. Um, I just I didn't bring it today though. Engines of Liberty. Why did you write the book and give people like a teaser of
5: of what the book is about? So, yeah, it's called Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed. And it's basically uh, an examination of how people actually can make a difference in advancing and defending liberty. Uh, It it, it talks in the opening, uh, in the introduction, about the resistance to Donald Trump. Uh, Why, I think, if we act together uh, through uh, organizations like the ACLU or Planned Parenthood or the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, we can effectively push back against Donald Trump. And, what, and, and the, the bulk of the book looks at what I consider the three most successful campaigns, citizen campaigns over the last quarter century to advance uh, ideas of constitutional law. One was the fight for marriage equality which you know everyone thinks happened overnight but was actually a 20-30 year struggle of a number of organizations including Lambda Legal Defense and uh, and the and the ACLU to think strategically about how you advance that right. Uh, a second uh, story I tell is the story of how the NRA got the individual right to bear arms recognized by the Supreme Court for 100 years that had been rejected by the court and they too engaged in a very thoughtful, st- strategic, incremental uh, uh, effort to advance that view. And whether you agree with that view or not, and I'm not a big gun rights supporter, uh, the the tactics they used are are you know, very uh, 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 insightful with respect to how we as citizens can be uh, can succeed. And then the last story is how did people push back against George Bush in the war on terror so that by the time he left office, he had curtailed all of his most aggressive measures. He had Hmm. released over 500 people from Guantanamo. He had closed down the CIA's secret prisons. He had suspended the torture program. He was no longer engaged in warrantless wiretapping. How did that happen? It happened by people acting together through organizations, again, civil society organizations, Human Rights Watch, or uh, the ACLU, or the Center for Constitutional Rights, acting in strategic ways in a variety of forums to put to to stand up for the principles of liberty uh, that they believed in, and so it's really a story about how you can be effective as a citizen activist, uh, and you know, never has that been more important. Uh, Than when you've got Donald Trump in the White House and you've got Jeff Sessions at the head of the uh, of the Justice Department.
0: Where can people go to stay tuned to what you all are doing before the Supreme Court as the term opens?
5: So uh, the ACLU website, uh, you can go to ACLU website, Supreme Court, and you'll see. Uh, all of what we're what we're fighting for and 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 how we're doing it and and the progress that we're making. So, how, pe- how can people find you? Are you on Twitter? Are you? I'm on Twitter. David Cole ACLU okay. uh, is my uh, Twitter uh, uh, tag, and uh, yeah, absolutely, they can follow me there.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to see you back.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come.
6: Hi, I'm Aaron Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at Cricket.com/slash store for this month only.
0: And now my conversation with Sarah Kate Ellis, the CEO of Glad. Hello, Sarah Kate. Thanks for joining us on Podday the People.
8: Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's so good to have you. GLAD. Mm-hmm.
0: What is GLAD and what do you do at GLAD?
8: Sure. So GLAAD is a 30, almost a 32-year-old organization, and we were founded during a crisis, the AIDS crisis in New York City, and our founders um, found that the reporting on AIDS was so defamatory that they started their first protest in front of the New York Post um, because the coverage was so terrible. And from there, we grew into an organization that also lobbied Hollywood for representation of LGBTQ people. And so over the years, the organization is really about shaping culture. So I like to say that we work in the court of public opinion. We introduce people, general population people, to LGBTQ people so that they can form opinions and not just stereotypes. And we've been doing that for over 30 years. And it really is about changing hearts and minds. And we know at Glad that once you know someone's story, it's really hard to hate someone. And so I think now more than ever, we need good storytelling so that we can bring people together and we know each other's, what each other's feels in the life and, and what people are going through at this time.
0: Now, what was defamatory about the initial AIDS coverage that, was, that caused people to be so upset?
8: It was pretty bad. Um, And you can look back, we have quite a bit of archives on it, but they would call it the gay men's disease, um, gay man's uh, cancer. Um, They, you know, there was a cry to put gay men, you know, and and isolate them from the rest of community, from the community. Um, And so it was really negative, you know, a lot of um, defamatory words used around Gay people. Um, it was very much centered on gay men.
0: And what is work that Glad has done that we would know about? Like I'm sure Glad has done things that I that that are Glad things that I didn't know Glad did. Mm-hmm. What are they?
8: So, any major watershed moment that you've experienced from an LGBTQ. Perspective in the media, Glad has had their fingerprints on. So it can be anything from Ellen DeGeneres coming out to more recently, Caitlyn Jenner coming out. Um, it will and graces of the world or any kind of representation that you've seen of LGBTQ people, 99.9% of it, Glad has been a part of and helping to shape the narrative. Um, as recently as Caitlin Jenner, is a great example because we worked with ABC and that team and Diane Sawyer to get her up to speed on trans issues that were beyond Caitlin and that coming out story, but really how much how marginalized the trans community is, how bad the unemployment rate is, how bad the murder rate is, and sort of give a broader perspective so that her reporting reflected that. And then when Caitlin came out, we helped her go through that whole process in a public manner. And then up until the I Am Kate show where we worked with entertainment um, e-channel, to form, help them form that show in a way that gave various trans voices and not just Caitlin's voice, but other voices who lived in in the trans community. Got it.
0: You know, I say all the time that systems and structures change our behavior, but uh, neighbors change our minds. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the work of Glad is like focused on making sure that like neighbors understand the world better.
8: Yeah, um, absolutely. We, we've we seen in political um Testing, right? That if you spend five to 10 minutes with a person face to face and you share why, how, how a policy or an action will affect you personally, you're more likely to change their mind. Um, and so we are your neighbor. We're your neighbor's shop for telling LGBTQ stories. And, um, you know, recent work that you might have seen from us too is um, we do a lot of news and journalistic work as well, not just entertainment. So most recently, Mark Green was a a representative that was being brought forth as the U.S. Army secretary. He was a nominee of Trump's. Um, We discovered some— Audio tapes where he was really um, egregious about transgender people, and we exposed that. We shared that with news outlets, and then he ended up stepping back. Um, when Nikki Haley finally spoke out about Chechnya, about the atrocities happening in Chechnya, so there's these um, gay camps concentration like camps in Chechnya, which is right next to Russia. We haven't been able to get the President of the United States to speak up about it, but we thought getting Nikki Haley to speak up about it and condemn it would be really powerful globally. We we used to be a global leader in human rights in America and that seems to be fading. And so we're we are trying to keep the pressure on that. Um, And so we started to pressure her or ask her, excuse me, to speak out about it and using our members at GLAD to speak out and ask her to. And, and it got her attention to the point where she did finally speak out about it. So we work in two real, two parallel worlds. One is news and journalism and the other one is entertainment.
0: And how do you, in doing that, make sure that you are having a lens towards representing every shade of, of people who is in the LGBTQ community?
8: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it's, it is what's called intersectionality, right? So it's that we're not, we're not, none of us are just one identity, right? And so, especially in the LGBTQ community, right? We are people of color, we're women, we're immigrants, we're Muslims. Um, And that's why actually an LGBTQ movement is the perfect place for intersectionality because we do represent everyone. Um, And so we do it in a couple of ways. First and foremost, it requires a diverse board and a diverse staff. So you have those voices at the table. And we work really hard on that at at GLAAD we have for years. Um, we've had a trans voice on our staff for 20 years. Um, we've had, um, and then we have specialists within categories from trans work to Southern work to people of color work, so across the spectrum. Um, and then as things start to grow or as issues start to arise, we start to look for experts in that area to speak to. Um, and And then I think it's, when we evaluate, we, we do um, reports annually. We have pretty great research that we provide. Some of the research is actually on television shows, on network shows, streaming content. And we not only evaluate them from LGBTQ, but we evaluate them based on race and ethnicity. We evaluate them based on abled and disabled. Um, so we go deeper in our evaluations to make sure and hold studios, networks, and streaming content providers accountable for representation. Got it.
0: Trump, before I ask you, like, issue-specific things about Trump, what's your, like, what's the assessment of what's happening at the federal level right now?
8: Deep concern. Uh, I think that since the election in on November 9th, um, at Glad, you know, um, the first thing I did that morning was call our leadership team in for a meeting. And we had a pretty thorough discussion about what our next steps would mean. And at that time, we decided that we had to build out our rapid response team. We knew this was going to be Every day was going to be drinking out of a fire hose, and it's proven to be. Um, So we started immediately fundraising to bring in a rapid response team. And within 30 days, we had a built-out rapid response team. And so that rapid response team is responsible for Trump Accountability Project, which is where we look at the nominees that he was putting forth. So now it's moved into every area of where this administration is attacking the LGBTQ community um, and other marginalized groups. Um, And so we're quick to respond on anything, obviously, that's LGBTQ, but anything that has to do with immigration or people of color across the board.
0: Recently, Trump has indicated that he's going to move forward with the trans ban in the military. What is your take on that? So, or do you think that's likely, or do you think this is just posturing by the by the
8: president? Um, I think that um, we have to take it seriously as serious as he stated in his tweets um, whether or not I can decipher what he's really thinking is beyond I think most people um, but I think what's interesting about that is that we actually did uh went into market very quickly after that two days after that was that that tw- Twitter storm happened and we asked Trump voters what they thought of it and they were not for the trans ban. So you can't, you're hard-pressed to find too many people that are actually for this trans ban. Um the people don't want it. The American people don't want it. The people serving in the military don't want it. The trans people in the military just want to serve their country. So the whole thing um, seems out of context and and only built up to drive hate and division. Um, this has been a you know. All of the appropriate groups within the military have been working to integrate trans people in an out-and-open environment for a number of years now, and it's been moving along beautifully and, and without incident. So to have this now seems um, out of left field and for no good reason. Um We've, we've debunked the myths about the expenses that are tied to them. It's nominal, the medical expenses tied to trans people. So there's, not, there's nothing to grab onto in terms of why other than to divide um, and to make some people feel really less than in this world. And I, I don't understand why we would want to do that, especially when we're talking about people who are fighting, putting their lives on the line for us.
0: Can you explain what is What does it mean that that LGBTQ people are going to be removed from the census?
8: Yeah, sure. Um, so, for the first time in the history of the census, there were going we were going to be able to be counted on the census. There would be a box to check to indicate your gender identity, sexual pref, uh, uh, sexual orientation. Excuse me. Got it. And and that um,
0: was put in under President. Obama. Yes. Okay.
8: And so we were, and that is two years away in 2020, um, or a couple of years away. Excuse me. Um, but um, it was with very quickly. Um, under the new AG, it was erased, so we will no longer be on that census, and that's something that that the LGBT community has fought for for a number of years. Is because, it still
0: an opportunity to to put it back, or is it done?
8: Um, I I would imagine. That you know now, this is what fire do you want to put out first um, with the resources that you have? Um, so yes, I I imagine with enough protest, enough fighting, we could make more noise about it. Um, but now we're looking at you know somewhere between six and fifteen thousand trans military people being kicked out over the next few weeks, years, months. Um, so we're we're fighting on all ends. Um, But, so I think there is still a room for it to be rolled back, but I don't see um, the temperament there within the administration to do it. But this has been part of the list of things. Um, And why
0: was the census, why was it
8: important? Because if you don't, if you're not counted, you don't count. Right. And so knowing who where the LGBTQ households are in America, how many there really are in America is really important when you want to know about the demographics of America and what size of the demographic and the general population are LGBTQ people and are there needs that are different for the LGBTQ community versus other communities. And so in order to understand a community and to have a better idea of the community, taking a poll about them and understanding who they are is really important. But we were also a from the um, Older American Survey, which is a survey that was um, that is for older Americans, um, and they took off the LGBTQ people from that survey. And so,
0: it's a federal survey.
8: Yes. So LGBTQ people. Um, older LGBTQ people might need certain special nursing or older um, care, and it's not being counted now. Was well, it counted is, before? Yes, it was. And, they and stick so, it off. yeah. And so, if you're somebody who is aging um, and you're moving into a nursing home, or and and now you're moving, you could be moving into a homophobic nursing home and not know. Um, or so it just it. Lack of information or misinformation build divides in the community, um, in our community, in our culture. And so being erased from these, th- from these various surveys um, means that we don't count anymore, that we're not, we don't exist anymore.
0: Got it. Now, what is happening over at the DOJ besides, besides those issues? Is anything else happening that, that Sessions is doing that we should be paying attention to?
8: Everything that Sessions is doing, we should be paying attention to, <laughs> honestly. Um, <laughs> okay, that um, makes sense. There's no sleep. <laughs> I think I
0: read that he—that there is—he um, rolling back the school-based support for transgender students.
8: Mm-hmm. Yep, that's that was practically within the first couple of weeks of his appointment, if not the first week. Um, but there are other sort of um, less— d- one of the challenges that we're having—it's a very interesting time—being glad who works through the media is that because you have this this administration that literally dominates the news cycle, um, getting other things that are actually happening raised up in the news is incredibly difficult. Um, but yes, in within his first few days, Sessions rolled back. Um, the guidances, the trans guidance, school guidances that Obama had put in place. Um, And um, he's been doing some other things that included, um, there was, um, at one point, he's looking at erasing LGBTQ people from other lines within the government. And so not recognizing LGBTQ people. And so everything that Sessions does needs to be watched. Everything that Betsy DeVos does, needs to be watched.
0: Now, what do you say to, um, you know, I'm a gay black man and I know so many other people who identify as LGBTQ who are worried in this moment, who are hopeless, who are getting hopeless, who thought that this wouldn't last as long as it is Mm -hmm. and it is. it seems like it's going full steam ahead. What do you say to people who might be losing hope in these moments who identify as LGBTQ
8: I say um first and foremost, we're here and we're fighting for you. Um every day, the team at GLAD and the team at other social justice organizations, and I know this because we all talk to each other, wake up every morning to fight for your visibility, to fight for your rights. Um, So know that we're on the front lines and that we're doing that. And if that brings you any sense of peace, but also please don't retreat, stay engaged, find communities that are accepting of you, find people That you like to be around. It's a really hard time right now. And especially in small towns across this country, it can be very isolating. And so I encourage people to find LGBTQ centers or groups that they can be a part of, especially at this time. And then I also say fight, fight, fight. Stay in the fight. Um. A tweet makes a difference. It informs people. It educates people. Showing up at a protest gets you out there, gets your voice heard. Your voice matters. The second you start to think that you don't matter and your voice doesn't matter, we start to lose, and we can't lose this. There's too many people at risk right now. One of the things that I would say to people during the election cycle is that whoever you're for— make sure that you're doing all you can to get them in office because you don't want to look back on November 9th and think, I should have. And I feel the same way about right now. Um, These I do believe that um, we will come out better for this in the end, but we're going to have a lot of scars. And the end is not written in stone. We need to write that, and we need to do that together.
0: Now, the trans community— When I look back on the past few years, I think that one of the most interesting and beautiful things is that we're having public conversations about the trans community in ways yes. that we've never had before. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I know that the conversation is not enough, right? That the conversation doesn't doesn't mean that people's hearts and minds have changed. Mm-hmm. Certainly doesn't mean that structures and systems have changed. Where do you think we go from here as we think about making this a world that is inclusive for the trans community, that is equitable, that is just? Like, what's the next step?
8: Right. Um, here's the greatest secret America has, um, that is, um, one of our best pe- kept secrets is our youth right now. Um, and we are actively at uh, glad engaging them because we don't want them to be our best kept secret. We want them front and center. I really believe that our future, um, is in their hands now and we when you talk about the future of the trans community and you look at – we did a um, a Harris poll that we released the beginning of this year. It was actually on the cover of Time magazine. And it was – what it showed, What what it revealed, it was on youth. And what it revealed was that I think it was 40 percent of youth don't identify – as binary meaning male female Hmm. wow gay straight um they want to live beyond the binary and so um and they see a much different world than we see we get so caught up in this that and the other thing and they just see a fluid life of getting to be your your best self and so um I, when I think of the trans movement, and I think of the future of the trans movement, it's been explosive over the past couple of years. From representation and policy, right? Um, especially from a representation standpoint, from seeing shows that are trans inclusive to working with producers to be to have producers and behind the camera trans inclusive sets, um, and and. So I think that we're moving in the right direction. With that, though, we're we're experiencing a considerable black backlash right now. I would say, um, and the trans community is seeing that as well. I mean, the murder rate of trans women of color is extraordinary right now. It's the highest that's ever been recorded, um, and so it it is. Both you're seeing the greatness of more representation, um, but then you're seeing this backlash of a trans military targeting trans people in the military or especially trans women of color being murdered on the streets on a a monthly, weekly, practically basis. And so when I think about the future, I think about our youth today and how bright they are and how forward-thinking they are. Um, and how they're going to help us get there. So at GLAAD, specifically, we started a youth ambassador program, which is um, having kids sign up at colleges to participate. And— we're getting an overwhelming response from from kids across the country at all levels of colleges, from two-year colleges to community colleges to Ivy League colleges to historically Black colleges, all signing up to be a part of the movement.
0: And where can people go to learn more about your work and to get involved?
8: So glad.org, GLAAD.org, G-L-A-D.org, two A's because we're extra special. And – um. We are always doing things. We have petitions to be signed. We have protests to attend. We have always fundraising opportunities. And we always, because we work in media and entertainment, always have really fun opportunities um, that get thrown our way that we can invite our members to become a part of. um, If it's not going to a premiere or seeing a new show or going to the opening of Will and Grace or something fun like that. So um, become a part of it. There's there's some— levity and 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 some hard work that needs to get done
0: if you had to identify like the three or so issues that are like the the either the biggest lovers right now in in the lgbtq space or the things that we should be paying attention to the most or things that aren't getting airtime that like should get airtime mm-hmm. what would they be
8: so i think um Number one, first and foremost, is that the Supreme Court is going to be hearing a religious exemption case in, we're thinking middle of November. Um, this has been an ongoing issue and an ongoing way for the small this organization, not so small, called ADF, um, which is about funded by f- about 40 million dollars. And their main objective is to um in their view, be able to discriminate against LGBTQ people through their religious beliefs. Um, And so it's taking religion out of the church and the mosques and the institutions and bringing it into your restaurants and your your, uh, pediatrician's office. And so you can be denied service. So that's an important one to be watching, and we're going to be very loud about that in the fall, in these coming weeks and months um, at GLAD, because this will set a precedent for uh, religious exemptions moving forward, and religious exemptions are very dangerous for the LGBTQ community. And once you get—you know, it starts with the LGBTQ community, but anybody can claim a religious exemptions if you open that door. So it's Pandora's box, really.
0: So, Kate, thank you so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Consider you a friend of the pod.
8: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so good to see you.
0: Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure that you tell a friend. Hopefully, I'll see you back next week. And make sure that you rate this podcast
7: wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. See you next week.